Welcome to another edition of the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. And I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the Culture Change Agent. Oh yeah, you know, my voice a lot different than last week, man. We done got all healthy and stuff like that. <laughs> Drinking orange juice and, and mucinex and all that good stuff, man. So we back in full effect and I'm excited. This episode is going to be phenomenal. It's a tad bit shorter than the rest and I will put this, put this out there. I recorded this episode in August 2014. Like it's an old one. But it still adds value. That's the great thing about great conversations. You know, those conversations that you can have years and before and they still add value and it's still sharing a great story and the guy's still getting it. So I'm excited to share this guest with our show. I mean, if you are a teacher, if you are a lawyer, if you are someone that is thinking about graduate school this is a podcast for you. Like we're going to be talking about some some great things. And before I get into his intro and introduce my guest to the show, I just want to share a couple few things. One, thank you from the bottom of my heart. We had just surpassed six thousand subscribers and downloads. That is phenomenal. Like phenomenal. We've only been around two and a half months. And the feedback that I'm getting, the the stories that, man, your podcast is changing my life. Like every Thursday, I look forward to it. Like, oh, man, there's so many people that I just want to thank. And my last episode of the season, I'm just going to I might just spend a whole episode just thanking people that have supported the show, shared the show, commented, left reviews. That's big. That's big. So thank you. And even if you haven't left a review, I always harp on it. Um, So if you haven't left a review, I need you to stop right now. Stop this podcast. Stop. And leave a review on iTunes. But even if you have it, thank you just for supporting the show and listening to it. I mean, we're having a hour plus conversations every week. And, and and some stuff may not interest you, but y'all tuning in anyways. And you find out even the stuff like, oh, I might not be interested in this podcast. Not this episode. You find out like, whoa, I got this from this? I, photographer taught me about life? Like, I don't, I don't even care about photography. Like, so thank y'all for tuning in and thank y'all for the support thus far and continue to support the show. Continue to share, continue to tell your friends about it, man. Like, this is this is huge. And also, continue to think about ideas how to start your own podcast and your own different niches and whatnot. Like, this this ain't just my platform about myself and I want to be the only black podcaster getting it. No, there's, there's a few others, but there's not enough. So I challenge you right now, challenge you right now, if you have an idea, if you have a concept, if you have something that's burning inside that you want to get out to the world, let's get it done in 2016. Get your podcast out there. So without further ado, nah, before I get into it, I'm sorry, I'm cutting myself off. Also, please, 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 uh, if it's your first podcast and you and you find out you enjoy it, you can find all the rest of the podcast at www.greggyhill.com. Also, if you're interested in being a, a guest or you want to reference a guest for a season, Two of the podcasts, which we already have around 25 guests confirmed or nah, 25 to 30 guests confirmed, you can still submit your request and send it to Greg at com. Just put a subject line, send me a request, and I'll do a better, I'll do the best job I can to reply, with, reply to you within the next week or so. So um, let's get into the bio of our guest. He is a second year law student at New York University School of Law. He serves as the president of the Black Ally Law Students Association, BALSA, and is a staff editor for the Review of Law and Social Change. 
He is a 2000, most important, he is a 2012 graduate of the number one HBCU in the world, North Carolina Anti-State University. He interned with Common Cause North Carolina during college, registering students and members of the community to vote. And as an intern, he helped promote the collegiate voice in the fight against 2011 voter ID bill in North Carolina. I mean, he was on the front line of that voter ID bill, which is crazy, but that's neither here nor there. It was during this struggle that he recognized his call to enter the legal profession. And as an attorney, he intends to fight injustices in our legal system that are still being perpetrated against many sectors of our society. He's worked for the Brennan Center for Justice in the summer 2015, working on things like voter rights, fair courts, money and politics, all that good stuff. He also looked a bit unique. He served as a 2012 Teach for America Corpus member, teaching eighth grade special education at Kipp Central High Academy in inner city New Orleans. I mean, and inspiration for entering the legal field originates from the biblical and a community standpoint. I mean, he believes that he is called to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, to defend the defendless, and empower those who feel powerless. And that's the formal bio. Sounds good. New York Law School, check. He didn't mention he was in the trials program sponsored by New York Law and Harvard Law, check. North Carolina Auntie Aggie, you already know Aggie Pride, check. Teach for America, teaching special ed children in NOLA, check. I mean, dudes been interning. For, 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 for NDC doing all that stuff since his freshman year, check. He's a, he's a beast. He's a beast. But most importantly, he's just a solid dude that enjoys the community, enjoys serving others, and keeps it 100. So allow me to introduce my brother, my fraternity brother as well, my dear friend, my future lawyer, a future world changer in the man, the myths. I ain't a, ain't a legend yet. <laughs> My brother, Mitchell Brown, to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. What's going on, my good people? Um, name is Mitchell Brown. Uh, as Greg said, um, I am a current uh, 1L at New York University School of Law here in the great New York City. I love New York City, by the way. Um, I'm from the country. I'm from Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, it's about a town, a small town, about an hour south of DC, and you know I lived there my whole life until I went to uh, North Carolina A&T, where my other side of the family lives. Um, so I went, I went to Greensboro, and you know I learned a lot at A&T. I learned that I have to give back to my community. I learned that I have to make sure that I'm a leader in my community, and. I would not have learned that at any other school but North Carolina A&T State University, so I'm grateful for that. Um, after A&T, as Greg said, I went and did Teach for America down in New Orleans, Louisiana, and part of the reason why I did Teach for America was because of the opportunity to take part in my community and to give back to my community, uh, especially young minorities um, in inner city New Orleans. And a big thing that has been instilled in me from a young age is that I've been blessed to have what I have, and we have to pay it forward. Those that are blessed have to pay for pay it forward to those that are not as blessed as us, and continue uh, to pay it forward and tell them to pay it forward because that's how true legacies are made. And I'm a big person about legacy. I want to make sure that when I go to an area, whether it be Greensboro, whether it be Fredericksburg, whether it be now in New York City, I take over and I make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Because that's what I—that's what I've been called to do, you know. Greg calls him calls himself the culture change agent, you know. I, I'm I'm an agent for change as well, and just trying to 
make it happen. Nah, and man. so I'm glad, I'm glad to be on this show. All right, cool. So before we dig deeper into your story and then how you got um, to where you are today, I like to start the show off with a quote because um, you know me well. I'm a big, big quote guy. I'm like <laughs> probably one of the biggest quote guys in the world. And um, I just think I love to get that motivational ball, that positivity rolling early in the show. So, Mr. Brown, take it away. What is your quote? And then give us a story about how you apply it to your everyday life. I got you. Um, this quote, I've been saying this quote to myself nearly every day um, for the last eight years. Um, it's, if purpose is present, then nothing can stop the determined individual from his or her rendezvous with destiny. And how I apply it to my life is... I have a purpose. God has given me a purpose in this in this world, and I know somewhat of that what that purpose is now because I'm in law school. But with that purpose, it's meant it's meant for me to use that purpose to manifest my destiny. And so, as I go through my life and with this purpose in mind, you know, because I have it, nothing will stop me from achieving my goals. Nothing will stop me from making it happen. Nothing will stop me from doing what God has called me to do. And that is to make a difference in this world. And that's how I apply it. I'm not going to be stopped. You can't stop me. Well, tell tell us a story, though, of of a rough time that you had and this quote and you realizing that I cannot be stopped. Tell us, walk us through a story. I want to be right there with you. Tell us a story where something not bad, but maybe a failure, maybe a um an, an opportunity you missed or something like that where you had to apply this specifically to your life to get through it? Uh, great question. Um, I think it was when I was in Teacher America um, during my first year in New Orleans. I'm a brand new teacher. See, Teacher America, let me back, back it up a little bit. Teacher America has a six-week institute period where they basically teach you how to become a teacher. You know, So they teach you different skill sets, different things about how to teach your kids. And so I, I'm, I come, I come off of, uh, I come off of that, and I think that I'm the man. You know, <laughs> um, I think that I know what I, what, what I'm doing. You know, and I mean my kids. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and from that first day, they gave me so much of a headache that's not even funny. Mm-hmm. So um, with, with that, I like I had to think to myself like, why am I teaching? Why am I here? You know, and because of that, because of that quote, and because I knew that I was purposed to be there, I knew that I had to make it through, and that nothing they were going to stop me. My administration wasn't going to stop me. Mitchell wasn't going to stop Mitchell. You know, <laughs> and you know, and that's the biggest thing because you know, I could, I could have said, no, I'm done with this. You know, it's not for me. But I knew God had called me to be down there in New Orleans, and because of that purpose, I knew that it was destined for me to be in the kids in these children's lives. And it turns out that those kids, you know, it turned out to be some of my some of my most memorable kids because they still I still talk to them to this day. You know, and one of them in particular, he's uh you know, he got in some trouble, you know, um, and I helped him out of that trouble and I'm like a father figure to him. And if I had quit on him, if I had not, you know, established my have my purpose established and continue moving forward then I would have lost the opportunity to speak into his life. Mm. And so I used that quote and it's just nothing stopped me. Like I knew I can't, I can't be stopped. I have to do this. You know, I can't let my fail, my fears, my failures or their attitudes, behaviors or other people's thoughts stop me from doing what I know God has called me to do. Man, 
That's powerful, man. That's powerful. And I, I, I got a question because I want to dig into to, to your background. But before I do that, I had a question. With your experience coming right off that six-week six week training program, and you already had, and we're going to talk about it later, but you had a lot of leadership experience and talking and working with kids and people. And then to come your first day and kids are acting crazy. Like what like what was that like? And then how did you alter your process over the next couple of weeks to get the kids on your side? Um what was it like? Um it was a it was a humbling experience. Um it was definitely a humbling experience because it showed me that even I can be the most prepared person in the world. Nothing will prepare you for the job that nothing will prepare you for the job of a teacher, but more importantly, the job of speaking to a young person's life. Um, you don't know this young person's background, you don't know where they've come from, and so it was a very humbling experience to know that you know there's people out there. I knew I always knew there's people out there that were less fortunate than me, but to actually be in a position where I can change that for them. And make and even give them an opportunity to be more successful in the future, you know. And it was all on me to do that. That was a very humbling experience, you know. I I, I like to think that you know I can make a lot of things happen, but this one I had to work for. I had to work for this one, you know. And so to answer the second part of your question, how did I get them on my side? Is I listened to them. Nobody had listened to them. And there's one story where this young man, I gave him detention the first day of class. The first day of class, <laughs> probably, probably the first period of class, he decided he wanted to curse me out and, and just act a fool in my class. I'm like, no, nah, you're staying out to school. You got detention. He's like, I don't have a ride, Mr. Brown. No, you're still staying out to school. I don't care. <laughs> still staying out to school. You know, but what happened after school is he said he did his detention. And we had what you call detention packets, which are reflection packets, you know, where you had to write about what you did and just get you thinking about, you know, the decision that you made. After that, we talked for two and a half hours about his rap music, about his life, and about his struggles with school, and about his just struggles in general, and his also his successes. And at the end, he said, Mr. Brown, I want to tell you something else. I want to say thank you for listening to me. Nobody has taken the time to listen to me. And because of that, because I took the time to listen to him, I took that message from him. Because he, he spoke into my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm coming in to speak into his life. He spoke into my life. And I took that message and I started listening to my kids. And I started listening to what they were saying, both verbally fit and, and just, just what they weren't like what they were saying, what they weren't saying. You know? And it's and just listening to them gave me insight into who they were as people and and I was able to tailor the way what I did and how I taught to the way that they learned. Wow. Um, and that made all the difference. Because at the end of the day, they knew that if another teacher was getting on their nerves or whatever, they can come to Mr. Brown and Mr. Brown was going to listen to them mm-hmm. and was going to give them feedback, give them advice. Whether, whether they liked it or not, that <laughs> wasn't a question, you know. But they were, I was going to give them advice and just listen to them. And after that, we came to a conclusion about what their next step should be. And that made all the difference. Wow. That's powerful, man. That's powerful because, like, all of us out there that may be listening or whatnot, even if you're not a teacher, even if you're a college student or if you're a young adult, it all boils down to actively listening because, just like you said, you probably went to the conversation before this, like, okay, let me let me add advice. Like, let me serve him. I know a lot. Let me just give him my knowledge and advice. But it ended up after talking to him, you realize, wow, I mean, I learned a lot from this. And exactly. just the kid just understanding that, hey, 
I just want to listen to you, man. And, and a lot of our kids nowadays, and, and especially in the minority community, um, they just want to be heard or listened to. Because even sometimes I find myself preaching, like, preaching at kids, especially my little brother. Or adults, all they do is telling them what to do, what not to do. And they're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. That's why they, they, they listen to the rap music. They listen to everything else because nobody is really listening to them. So I think that's one key takeaway that we all, everybody listening, um, can tell you. Just sit, take, sit, take a second. And listen to what the person says because we all know right now half of y'all that listen to this podcast probably on your phone doing something. Nobody gives anybody else their full attention anymore. How many times have you been out, uh, Mitch, at a restaurant or something like that, and everybody's looking down at their phones? Uh, not like at least at least eighty percent of the time, everybody's <laughs> in their phone. Like and the phones on the phones on the table, and that's why I established the rule: uh-huh. no phones on the table. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And then when you're talking to somebody. How many times are they intently looking into your eye and then listening to really what you're saying? Like that only happens like maybe 10, 20 percent of your conversation, does it? Exactly. They're, they're, those, those conversations are few and far between. <laughs> and the crazy thing about it is when you're when you're talking to somebody and you're looking them dead in their eye and you're listening, it has a, a, a outrageous amount of um. It, it's a, it's a big difference because the person listening they realize that, oh wow you're you're really listening man I really like that skill I've done that all the time with especially business leaders or important people or anybody in general that's one takeaway right now everybody write this down or just think about it in your head one takeaway right now you can have next conversation you have look the person in his eyes and listen please 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 so Mitch Mitch let's talk about your experience at um at ANT a little bit beforehand uh, I know you said you chose to go ANT what other schools did you apply to. I applied to Morehouse. That was my number one choice. Uh-huh. I really wanted to go to Morehouse to be a Morehouse man. You know, I've always heard about that. Um, and then also uh, William and Mary, UVA, and North Carolina State. Um, I, w- I wasn't too keen on going to an HBCU mm-hmm. at the time, at the time, but I'm so glad I did because it taught me about my culture and it taught me how to become a better African American man. So, so, how did that process go out? I mean, these are some huge schools: UVA, uh, William and Mary. North Carolina State, and you chose a t so what was the deciding factor oh the uh, deciding factor is it was, it was uh i'm gonna say it was three things um the first thing was that my whole family lives in greensboro ninety percent of my family lives in greensboro, so I knew what I had that I would have that support system in in greensboro um and my father went there, my grandmother went there, my sister went there, my aunts uncles cousins you name it they went to a t um you know, to all my central central people, mom went to central, my grandfather went to central. You wow. know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna hold that against him, though. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, it was so it was it was that's, that was a major thing. And the next thing was I knew that the business school was good, a really good business school under Dean Craig. You know, my dad was an engineer at ANC, and he told me about Dean Craig. Mm-hmm. So I knew that the business school was going to be very proper, and I was going to get a great cultural education as well as academic education mm-hmm. at ANT. And the last one was really putting the nail in the coffin that they I, I was a Dowdy scholar, mm-hmm. which was a full scholarship to ANT. So my dad said I had no other choice. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like, it's like, boy, you got full scholarship and we have to when I pay for college, you're going to ANT. You mm-hmm. know? And it just happened that that turned out to be one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Oh wow. That's that's powerful. That's powerful. That's powerful. And um Tell us, because you have an interesting story. Tell us a little bit about, um, before we get into kind of your transition from Teach for America to law school, tell us more about what you did during the summer at A&T, because you, did, you were in some interesting programs, and you did a lot of interesting internships, so tell us a little bit about that. Um, I, my, after my freshman year, you know, 
going to A and T, they always push internships and push experience. So I did I did a program called Inroads. Um, Inroads is a program that places minorities into internships uh, around the around the country, and I, mine was in D.C. So uh, I did that for two years. I interned after my freshman year at Washington Gas. You know, basically connecting people to technology, uh, connecting the workers to technology, just writing how like how to manuals, like for example, how to write this document, how to um, fill out this form, those types of things in the technology field. And then my after my sophomore year, I did uh, I interned again at Washington Gas, but this time in the the policy and community community engagement office. So basically, I was I like to call myself a junior lobbyist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> working, working on talking to legislators both in Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia about um, Washington gas interests. So, like, whether it's laying new gas lines or um, fixing new infrastructure, those types of things. You know, really gave me insight into the political process on the lobbying side. And then after my junior year, I did a program that changed my life. Um, this program is called Trials. Mm-hmm. And what trials is 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 it's a program that is meant to help underserved communities, uh, underserved diverse communities, t- to gain access to top law schools. Top law schools being the top fourteen law schools in the nation. And that program was a consortium between Harvard Law School and NYU Law School, and it was basically LSAT boot camp. They gave us a stipend for the summer to go to. I went to Harvard, so to go to Cambridge and to just learn. Wow. To learn about the LSAT and just to learn how to be the best on the LSAT. <laughs> and the goal the goal was after that t- time there, we would go take the LSAT and we would kill the LSAT. Mm-hmm. And because for many of us, that was the final nail in the coffin for our package to law school. You know, it's the LSAT score because it's very important. And I will see his work because I'm at NYU now. <laughs> wow. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. That's amazing. So we're just going to fast track it right now. Um, one, that's crazy. Harvard trials. We're going to have all the links to see these programs on our show notes. Um, but walk us through, because I know you're a big advocate for teaching and Teach for America. But walk us through your decision to leave Teach for America and to start on this new journey in law. Got you. Um, so, yeah, I'm an advocate for teaching, you know, but I always knew that that wasn't my final destination, you know. Going back to a quote, I'm a quote man too, you know, um, a quote that I thought about, you know, when, I, when I'm making this decision is that where we are now in life is not where we are destined to be, you know. And so taking that, I knew that this was going to be a two-year thing for me to, to grow as a man, to grow as a person, to get the education experience that I am, am, you know, very into. And so I took that and I'm like, this is not where I want to, I needed to be. I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I love I'm not, I like teaching. I love mentoring more, and so I knew that it was time for me to go because uh, you know I'm not I'm not very interested in teach, teaching, reading, writing, and math. I'm more interested in teaching you how to do life skills, how to tie a tie, how to become a man or a woman, how to respect people. You know, talk about looking people in the eyes. How to do how to do that. Some of my students didn't know how to look people in the eye, and you know, my dad taught me from a very young age: you look a man in his eye. You know, it's a sign of respect, and so. Um, I knew that was, it was time for me to go. And I knew that I was going to take this experience and be able to really utilize what I learned through my TFA experience in law school. You know, a lot of people go to law school straight out of college and, you know, and that's all fine and well, well and fine. But at the same time, they lack certain, some experiences 
to truly, you know, uh, not say prop up, but truly uh, inform their law school experience. You know, when we're talking about a case, we're talking about cases in, in education or with disabilities. I've experienced that firsthand, and I have a certain set of experience and a certain set of ideas that will help me to uh, really take over that case and understand that case. Mm, you know, gotcha. and I, I just knew that I was I was meant to go to law school. You know, because I saw a lot of educational inequities um, down in New Orleans, and I want to change that. So tell us a little bit more because I, I want to dig into this. Tell us a little bit more about some of the educational inequities you saw in New Orleans because I'm interested. Got you. Um, some of the things that I saw were um, there's a couple things. First is that I taught special ed, so because I taught special ed, a lot of my students were in the general population, and because they weren't in general population, they weren't quote unquote assimilated into these school society. Uh-huh. And so that's basically setting them up for failure because that's setting them up to say, you know, you're a special group, you know, because you're in special ed, but you're not, you're not, you know, quote unquote, smart enough to be in general population. And I have a problem with that. You know, my kids, you know, did they have special needs? Yes. But did they, did they need to be in general population? Yes. Because, you know, in special, need, special ed class, you know, there's bars at a certain level and general ed bars at another level. At some and arguably a higher level. I want my kids to be in general population so that they can go reach that higher level. Because if you reach at that higher bar, if you set a higher bar, they will achieve. You know, if they set the bar, they will achieve. And, and uh-huh. I get in, in my class, I set the bar high. You know, but in general ed classes, the bar is sometimes a little higher. And I want them to achieve their dreams and achieve their goal and achieve their goal. And they couldn't do that. A second thing is that a lot of kids are mislabeled special ed. Uh, to be to be blunt, a lot of these children then they are special ed, but all they need is somebody to listen to, mm-hmm. or somebody to give them some discipline. However, that may be, you know, different parents have different discipline strategies. My parents had a certain set of discipline strategies that some are trying to outlaw right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I got I got spanked when I was when I was growing up, you know, <laughs> and I turned out just fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, um, but you know, just 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 some semblance of discipline needs to be instilled in these kids, and they wouldn't be, you know, special ed anymore. And after, in fact, I was talking with one of my friends uh, the other day. I'm like, there's a reason why uh, when eighth grader is on a third grade reading level, that he's at that reading level. When in kindergarten, you know that child cannot read, but you just pass him on. Mm-hmm. Of course, you want to have problems later on if you just pass him on in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. It's just common sense. Yeah, you know. Uh, and if you keep on passing the child on, you know, then you're going to complain, oh, this child needs help, yada, 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 that's more money I need to spend. No, 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 no. Give that child the help he needs in kindergarten. You won't have to worry about him in eighth grade anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll he'll be on on par, on track with what where his peers are. But when you just pass on kids because you don't have the capacity uh, at your school to teach these kids, it's a problem. You know, and... Like granted, at my school, I taught a charter school at Kip. You know, Kip was a very, a very, very good school. And in my school, I was allowed the autonomy to really direct my class the way I wanted to direct it. So uh, I had to teach reading, writing, math, and life skills. And so I was able to, you know, not develop a curriculum, but use the curriculum from general ed and, and apply and accommodate it to my students. You know, 
but I was had that autonomy and I had them all day. So they, I was basically their only teacher. And that and that within itself is, is an issue because we need to have access to more more teachers. But I was able to really get to the nitty gritty and help them. You know, I wasn't just going to pass these kids along. So, oh, you don't get up oh, next topic. Mm-hmm. No, I stayed on. I was able. I, I had the opportunity to stay on top. It was like, oh, you don't understand how to do this equation. Okay, let's work on equations. Let's let's uh, work during lunch. Let's try to get this done because I had to play. We had to play catch up now. They had to play catch up. I had to play catch up now. And I just need. I need them to get back on track because when they go to high school, you know, having a little bit of special ed in high school can cause some problems when they're trying to go to college. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of my kids, the track they're on right now. So they're not on track to necessarily get a diploma or on track to get a certificate, which basically said, in my in my view, says, thank you for your 12 years in, in Louisiana education. Now go have a nice day. Wow. You know, and that's a problem. Big so problem. That's, that's some of the inequities that I see, and that's what I want to kind of change in law school is go back, get this law degree, and go work in civil rights and work on access to education from a very young age. I think, personally, this is my political view, I think that it should be mandatory mm-hmm. pre-K education. Because a, a solid pre-K program will eliminate a lot of the educational problems that are prevalent in our educational system today. Mm-hmm. All it starts with the strong pre-K system, a mandatory pre-K system. That way when these kids go to kindergarten, they already probably know how to read. And if they don't know how to read or they have some diagnosed learning disabilities, we can catch it early rather than later. That's, that's 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 big. That's big. That's big. So let's transition to the future round, man. So... Mitch, in the future, and if you can kind of um, get specific, how do you plan on using your law degree exactly? Like, what is what is what is your future? What is what what does Mitchell Brown look like in ten years? Ten years, so ten years that puts me in two thousand twenty-four. All right, so in ten years, um, hopefully, I'll would have I'll have worked for a civil rights organization. Mm-hmm. So whether that's whether that's the ACLU, the NAACP, Legal Aid Society. Uh, the myriad of different civil rights organizations. I really want to work in civil rights. And hopefully I'll be in a position uh, where I'll be, you know, a senior official in these organizations working on civil rights issues, whether that be voting rights, whether that be education, uh, whether that be police brutality. Um, hopefully I'll be in these civil rights organizations working as a senior official. Gotcha. And, then one, and one day after that, hopefully going more towards the policy side of the house. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Another question. If you had to tell Mitchell Brown something, knowing what you do now, 10 years ago, what would it be and why? Good question. <laughs> I had to tell myself something 10 years ago. Um, I, would, I would say it's another quote, and it's, it's on my wall right now, and it's something that you know I wish I would have told myself earlier. And it's you know, don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And so basically, like, stay true to who you are, you know, and, I, and I've, I've stayed true to who I am, you know, but I've definitely let others' opinions influence what I've done in my life. And, and you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's good influence and sometimes it's not so good influence. But I wish I would have told myself that earlier so I had that mindset over the last 10 years is to just do me. You know, others going to have their opinions, but you don't have to listen to their opinions all the time, you know. And what they say about you, what they what they do to you, it's not it's not a reflection on who you are. You know, uh, you have to be true to who you are and to do you basically. So that's what I'm telling myself. 
That's real, man. I think we can all take something out of that because even though you hear it all the time, just focus on yourself. Don't worry about it. But you really have to remind yourself every single day. Right. <laughs> because there's so many different situations where you go and you might say something or you're just constantly thinking about what others are thinking and all this other stuff, man. So that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. Uh, a last question in the future round. And this is a deep one. I, I, I'm sorry I had to go from zero to 100 real quick. <laughs> what mm-hmm. type of legacy do you want to leave behind? Okay. Um, when it's all said and done. It's all said and done. What kind of legacy do I want to leave? I want to leave a legacy of someone who didn't quit. Uh, I want to leave a legacy of someone who gave his all and left their all on the table. I want to leave a legacy of somebody who valued family over work. Mm-hmm. I want to leave a legacy of someone who fought for the rights of those who can't fight for themselves. And lastly, I want to leave a legacy of someone who, feel, who fulfilled his God-given purpose and truly manifested his destiny. Deep, man. So now we're heading to our final round, which is the culture change round, where I'm gonna ask Mitchell Brown five questions, rapid answer. And we're gonna see where he is. Right now. You ready for it, man? Let's go. All right. What is the best piece of advice that you ever received? Uh, to dine on self be true. What does that mean? From my grandfather. To dine on self be true. It's a quote from Shakespeare, and it's basically what I said a couple minutes ago. Um, don't let don't let the noise of others drown out your own inner voice. Stay true to who you are. Got you. What is one of your personal habits that you can that you can attribute most to your success? Reading. Um, I, I read. I, I'm not gonna say I'm a, voracious, I'm, a, I'm a voracious reader, but I read a lot. And from those books, I glean a healthy amount of knowledge that I'm able to use for my life and to share with others. Mm, which leads us to our next question: What is your favorite book and why? My favorite book is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Uh, that book changed my life. <laughs> I read that in 11th grade, and it just changed my whole mindset about leadership and about where I was going with my life at the time. Because uh, 11th grade, I was 16 years old. I was young. I was young 11th grader, so I was 16, and I read that book. And you know, basically, it just told me to, that if I follow these seven habits, I don't know them off the top of my head right now, but if I follow these seven habits, then I will be highly effective. And it's panned out. It's true. <laughs> you know, I follow seven habits, you know, and my life has been that much better because I follow those seven habits. Mm, that's huge, man. What inspires you and keeps you motivated? What inspires me and keeps me motivated? Uh, what inspires me is the fact that I'm following my God-given purpose. Um, and how does that, how's that keep me motivated is that I know that I'm on this journey to fulfill my purpose and to fulfill my destiny. You know, you've heard me talk about a lot about purpose and destiny, you know, during our conversation, because those two things are very important to me. You know, um, without purpose, you know, you're just running around aimlessly. But with purpose, you're able to go somewhere. You have a destiny. You have a mission. And you're able to truly manifest that mission, manifest that destiny. That's deep, man. That's deep. Um, last question in the culture change round. If you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? <laughs> if I was president of the United States, the first thing I would do <laughs> is focus on our country. Um, focus on the United States of America. We have, we've over the past, I'm going to say 15, 20 years, we've had a, a huge focus on what's going on outside of our borders. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what, and that, and not what is going on inside of our borders. You talk about the Mike Brown incident in Ferguson, you know. But after, and honestly, and this is something that's happening is that the media has not forgotten it, but the media has gone to now this ISIS situation in 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 Iraq. You know, or we're worried about Syria, or we're worried worried about what's going on, you know, in Mexico with them coming across the border, or we're worried about you know the what the uh, Europe is doing. That's fine. And all that's fine. And all. I mean, I'm not saying that foreign policy, you know, is not an important part uh, of of the United States. But if you if you can't take care of home first, then how are you going to take care of somebody else? Mm-hmm. Why are you worried about somebody else if you're not worried about your own people? So if I was president, I would stop focusing on what's happening outside of our borders and focus on what's happening inside our borders, mainly with mainly with police brutality, voting rights, education. Uh, immigration. We need to focus on those things because that's impacting us now in this day and age. Not what's going on in Syria and Iraq and all that kind of stuff. Mm, that's deep, man. That's deep. That's deep. So the last question, which um, which is honestly one of the most important questions on the show, man. And if you have one wish, no, my bad. <clears throat> Cut that. Last question. If you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African American culture. What would it be and why? So one thing I can change about society or about African-American culture or both? No, it's, it's the African-American culture, my bad. But one thing, the crab effect. Um, I would take, I would, I would change the, our mindset about the crab effect that we don't want our brothers and sisters to move forward. You know, we, we, the crab effect, you know, for audience that doesn't know the crab effect is basically um, where you know, somebody's trying to succeed and they're making moves up up the ladder, quote unquote. But somebody's always nipping at their heels and pulling them down, back down the ladder. I would, I would, you know, take that away. I, I, I would change that because that there could be no success if somebody's keeping, if somebody's continually pulling you down. There can be no success. Mm-hmm. We, we look, we look at the, you know, the Asian community. We look at the Hispanic community. They work together. They work together for a common purpose. Mm-hmm. You, you may, they may let. And, um, this may sound stereotypical, but I don't mean in a stereotypical manner. They may have a bunch of people in the house, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, in one house. But I guarantee at the end of the day, in about five, six years, they're all going to have their own house because they pool their resources and they make it happen, make it work. And black folks used to do that a long time ago. But we, can't, we went away from that when we decided we wanted to be bougie mm-hmm. and, do, and, and, do it for, and do it for ourselves, be fancy and do it for ourselves. That's a problem. We need to work together to, to achieve some common purposes. Because without that commonality and purpose, and without that, you know, that togetherness, we're going in the wrong direction. You know, it's it's like it's like Booker T. Washington. You know, we can be uh, we, we we can be as separate fingers uh, on one hand, or we can be a mighty fist or something like that. It's, it's some quote like that. You know, yeah. Um, but basically, like like uh, together we together we stand divided, we fall basically, and so. If we don't continue, if we don't work to start working together, we're going to fall, and we're seeing that now. Society is is throwing us punches left and right, you know. But we only seem to come together when when something happens, when Mike Brown happens, when Trayvon Martin, when Jordan Davis happens. We only come together when those things happen. But what's happening? What about our voting rights? Our voting rights are being taken away on a daily basis, and we're not doing anything about it. You know, because we're worried about getting the, the fastest car, the, the newest clothes, getting them Air Yeezys or whatever. That's nice, but your burden rights been taken away. We need to come together. Spoken like a true Aggie, man. Dog, 
This has been a privilege. It's been phenomenal getting a chance to 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 hear your story, hear your take on different things. And what's crazy about it, bro, is that we just got a snippet. We didn't even talk about Harvard Trials Program. We didn't even talk about your decision of which law school you want to go to in that whole process. We didn't even talk about your first year at law school. So we'll definitely have you back on the show, man. I can't wait to to, to, to the audience to learn more about your story. And I'm going to be real. Season two, we're going to have... We're going to change it up a little bit. Well, we're going to, of course, our, I think we, we share showcase a variety of different people now. But I definitely want to dig into the story of people in graduate schools, people that are attending different school, business schools, law schools, um, medical schools. So we can paint a, a wide picture because, of course, we're going to have those mid-career professionals that are out here killing it. National shout out. And guys, he shout out Zim Trapping the War. Shout out to my future people I got in the podcast and I ain't told y'all about yet that are killing it in the middle of their careers. I mean, not in the middle, but a little bit more established. And then we have, of course, our, our college students like the, the Austin Ogletrees and, and, and a few more that we will be showcasing. But I definitely want to highlight some that are in those graduate school programs and, and walk us through that experience. What does it look like to go to Harvard Business School? What does it look like to go to NYU Law School? What does it look like to go to Matt Harry and I, and I probably butchered that name, medical school, so please don't be offended. Like, What does it look like to do those things? And, um, yeah, so I thank you, man, for, for keeping it 100 on this episode and giving us a snippet, just a snippet of where we're going to take the thing season two, man. No problem, my brother. You got it. Thank you, man, for all that, man. So, audience, Minority Trailblazer Nation, I hope you enjoyed this show. I tell you, there's only two more episodes, and then season one is a wrap, like in the books. We 17 episodes in. I never thought we would get this far. It's like, I knew we were going to get this far. I'm, I'm already thinking about season 10. <laughs> I probably won't be the whole season 10. I'll probably bring on somebody else, but I'm already thinking about season 10. So for those of you that um, would love to enjoy the podcast, I need you to do two things, please. One, leave a rating on the podcast. You can follow it on SoundCloud. Leave a comment on SoundCloud. Subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating, please. Write a review. The second, please share this podcast via Facebook, via Twitter, or just share the link via 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 iPhone. Um, and, and please, for more information, you can go to www.greggyhill.com. If you, if you know anybody, you want to reference anybody for the show or bring somebody on the show, holler at me. Hit me up on the gram, at Gregory Hill. Hit me up on Twitter, at Gregory Hill. Hit me up on Facebook, at Gregory E. Hill. Or you can snap me, at Gregory E. Hill. And um and I'll bring them on, or you could just do the regular thing and send me an email at greg at com, and I can make sure I can reach out and bring somebody on, bring bring a guest on the show that you think would add value. So we already got thirty plus people locked in for season two, but I'm willing to add more. It's all about adding value to the culture. We're doing some some different things season two, and I like to thank you for just for rocking and and listening. So. I'm rapping right now. Anybody who knows me know I be rapping. <laughs> but thank you again for listening. And you know how we always do it. Before I end, I need you to do one thing and one thing only. You're like, what is that, Greg Hill? That is change the culture. Good night.